Welcome to Enemies of the People. A podcast about extremism in the 21st century. Hello, frenemies. It's me, Maria Norris. Welcome to episode 27 of Enemies of the People. The first three episodes of the season really represent a special mini-series on Islamophobia. We started with Rizwan Sabir talking about the traumatic violence of counter-terrorism, and we followed with Suhaima Mansur Khan telling us about how Islamophobia is part of the system of colonial capitalism. And today we have Mubashra Tazamal talking about Islamophobia as a global tool of authoritarianism and fascism. Mubashra is a writer and an academic researcher at the Bridge Initiative, which is a research project on Islamophobia housed at Georgetown University. She's speaking with us today in her capacity as an expert on global Islamophobia and not on behalf of the Bridge Initiative. I followed Mubashra's writing for a long time. In my work, I focus in particular on Islamophobia in the United Kingdom and the United States as part of the counterterrorism apparatus, so I wanted to hear more from Mubashra about the role that Islamophobia plays globally, focusing on India and China as examples. I was thrilled she was able to come on the show, so now, without further ado, Here's Mabashra. My name is Mabashra Tazimal. I am an academic researcher at the Bridge Initiative, which is a research project on Islamophobia housed at Georgetown University. I also do freelance writing, so I write a lot about global Islamophobia, looking at primarily state-sponsored Islamophobia, whether that being legislation or rhetoric coming from politicians and, and discriminatory policies policies that impact Muslims. So I've looked at China's genocide of Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang, which is known as East Turkestan by Uyghurs. I've looked at what is happening in India under Modi's Hindu nationalist government, looking at broadly Austria, France, the UK, and of course, looking at the US, which is where I'm from. So when you talk about um, state-sponsored Islamophobia, are you talking uh, mostly about counterterrorism legislation or is it broader than that? I would say it's broader than just counterterrorism legislation. So counterterrorism legislation has informed a lot of the narrative that the government has when it comes to Muslims. So let's say in France, what starts off as oh, Muslims are a threat, so therefore we need to be surveilling their mosques and tracking their their words online, kind of morphs into almost a cultural threat of, oh, well, they don't have the same values that we do. We saw in in the most recent election, Macron's interior minister talked about how he was uncomfortable seeing halal meat at grocery stores. So, and that is... That comes from rooted in counterterrorism language, but it's framed as, oh, they're culturally now different. And there's a racialized element to that. And so in India, the logic is, again, framed, Muslims are seen as a threat, but also there's they're kind of depicted as foreigners, even though they're indigenous to the land. But they're now being framed as either illegal immigrants or they are a hindrance to the BJP's desire to create a Hindu-only nation. So it, it does start off a lot in this securitized kind of framework, but it expands into kind of cultural, racial, uh, and, and a broader sort of lens. 
let's stay with India then, because I don't think yeah. that's something that has gotten a lot of attention in the West. So what is happening in India? When Prime Minister Narendra Modi came into office, it's important to know his, his backstory. He used to be the chief minister of Gujarat back in the early 2000s, and that's when the Gujarat riots happened. Those were basically, it was, there was a train of, I think, Hindu pilgrims, and they were attacked, and basically, I believe 50 or so were, were burned in the train. And in response, kind of vigilante groups and mobs targeted Muslim neighborhoods and thousands were estimated to have been killed, raped, like brutal, brutal violence. And Modi comes into this because he was a chief minister at the time and basically didn't really do anything to stop this violence. He rose in the ranks of the BJP, which is a Hindu nationalist right-wing party. And the BJP has a militant wing, which is the RSS. And like they're, they're a militant wing, so they do express violence and support for violence. And the RSS has helped kind of form formulate like almost, you know, communal Hindu nationalist groups and mobs who, who kind of go out and threaten other people, kind of like your own in local enforced troops, uh, you could say. But so Modi was elected. And since he's come to power, he's enacted a lot of legislation that has basically rendered Indian Muslims second class citizens or subjected them to deportations, imprisonment, vigilante violence. So legislation wise, a few years ago, I believe now his government uh, enacted the NRC and the CAA, Citizenship Amendment Act. The CAA gave basically Hindus who are living in neighboring countries access to citizenship that exclusively denies Muslims citizenship. And then the NRC goes with that. It was a national registrar to basically weed out illegal immigrants, but illegal immigrants was just a cover for targeting Muslims who had lived in India. So that whether that be Muslims in Assam, who the, the BJP often says they're illegal Bangladeshi immigrants. So that created a huge protests and the protests were clamped down on violently. Journalists were arrested. So from that, we have gotten conspiracy theories online and the BJP is known to have their own digital kind of, you know, what would, what would you call it? A digital army or say they have their own trolls. They have their own bots and they kind of push out conspiracy theories that basically allege that Indian Muslims are behind some kind of plot to overthrow the country or through to threaten Hindu identity. And so one of the things I'm currently looking at is how kind of terminology is being used. And a lot of that is Islamic terminology so the usage of jihad. So in India and online from Indian circles, you've seen allegations of economic jihad, allegations of narcotics jihad, allegations of land jihad, allegations of food jihad. It sounds absolutely ridiculous, but it creates these conspiracy theories that, again, ties in that idea of a Muslim threat to any sort of mundane land, food, economy, whatever you want to say. And that is kind of it kind of takes on its own life online, but it has real world consequences. So one of the, the famous conspiracy theories for the past few years has been the, the love jihad, so-called love jihad conspiracy theory. And a lot of BJP, BJP politicians have given 
uh, have given a platform to this. And Hindu nationalist groups on the ground have actually gone out, carried out like vigilante violence, targeting inter-religious couples. So basically alleges that Muslim men are trying to lure Hindu women to forcibly convert them and marrying them with the end goal to be so they can, you know, they can expand the the Muslim population. And again, the idea is that they're going to overthrow the country. Muslims, again, are only 14% of India. They have been discriminated against. They are marginalized consistently. And what we've seen is there's been spurts of really horrific violence that's happened in I believe it was 2020 now, there was the Delhi pogroms that happened. And that was two to three days of just absolute violence in a neighborhood in Delhi where Hindu nationalist mobs specifically targeted Muslims' homes and Muslim businesses. And again, the government isn't doing anything. Last, in December of 2021, one of the biggest, I think, videos that came out and kind of caused the uproar that I think we have been needing for a while was there was a religious event that was being held in the city of Hardwar and it was attended by BJP politicians and there was numerous speakers at this conference who openly called for the genocide of Indian Muslims who openly called for killing for going out and engaging in violence and that is it's terrifying Because in a way, you have to remember, there's a billion people. India is a very multicultural, multi-religious country, and it's a secular country. It has a secular constitution. But what the BJP has been doing is engaging in campaigns to almost erase the Islamic history of India to kind of push this idea that India is, has always been, and will always be only a Hindu nation. And that kind of leaves... Muslims in a place of fear, of uncertainty, of instability. For people who want to to learn more, I highly recommend following the work of Rana Ayub. She is a fantastic journalist. She writes for the Washington Post. She's been writing about India and politics and the government for, for decades. She wrote a really important book about the Gujarat riots called the Gujarat Files. And she's been targeted by the government for her work. She was recently denied leaving the country to accept an award. And after there was a back and forth from the Italian organization that was inviting her, they let her go. But also there's the Islamophobia aspect, but there's also this clamp down on dissent. So targeting journalists who are reporting about what's happening and almost unleashing sort of mobs online. And there's so much harassment and so much chaos and instability. So it's really shocking for me that more people aren't talking about it, given the levels we're at when it comes to what's happening on the ground. It's shocking to me as well, because none of this should sound surprising to people, because all of which that you've said, so the right wing nationalism, the disinformation campaigns, the revisionist history, all of these are hallmarks of fascist politics that we are seeing in the West with Donald Trump in the US and with the Tory party here in the UK, for example. So the politics is the same. It's just happening in a stage that people are not familiar with. And that that's also kind of goes in line with the other major event at the time was Brexit. So Brexit happened and then Trump got elected and it kind of stirred into this motion kind of began where the entire world shifted, right? Mm-hmm. So there has been a massive rise in the global far right and from my perspective, I've always seen that rise has been able to ha- has been has happened because of Islamophobia, because Islamophobia was 
was and has been accepted as normal and applauded and just even ignored as, oh, no, it's not a real problem or, oh, well, yeah, the idea that Muslims are a threat is credible. And it's been through that kind of lens that the far right has been able to enter the mainstream. They've been able to kind of make themselves palatable. And in an essence, the mainstream meshed with the far right because they reiterate that same sort of rhetoric. So when it comes to Islamophobia, there is no mainstream or far right. Everyone's kind of on the same page. Would you say that 9-11 then didn't so much create this because Islamophobia existed way before 9-11, but rather brought it to the forefront and almost gave it legitimacy, political legitimacy? Absolutely. I think so Islamophobia has always has always been there. It's been there for centuries. What 9-11 did was kind of build on the existing prejudices, but brought it to a level of they're a threat here. These Muslims, these others, they're a threat here too. And basically the language was then, it became the overarching language of the government. It informed every segment. We had an entirely new department created, Department of Homeland Security after 9-11. We had TSA. We had the creation of all these new sort of industries. We had the whole cottage industry of, of counterterrorism experts who it breathed a life into this new ecosystem, I would say. And, and that impacted, again, what happened in the world because the U.S. is a superpower. We had the wars in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and the larger war on terror. And that sort of playbook that the U.S. created well, it helped any authoritarian leader who wanted to push his or her or their own agenda because it was kind of handing them a, a playbook. So you can clamp down on dissent. You can target anyone. Just say they're they're engaging in extremism or terrorism. And you've never defined what that is. So you can see how dangerous that can be. And it's fascinating to me as well, because from my perspective, I also see that the creation of the PREVENT program in the UK has had a global effect because the PREVENT program is deeply problematic. It is almost universally hated by people in the UK who engage with it in any kind of way from an equality or human rights perspective. But it has been incredibly successful globally because people think it's a good idea and it has been emulated across the world. So I wanted to ask you to expand a little bit on that from your expertise, how successful and popular is the PREVENT program worldwide? The underlying logic has informed policies around the globe. So PREVENT actually informed CVE, countering violent extremism in the U.S. Those were the U.S.'s tackling so-called extremism programs. PREVENT, the language behind it is that Certain individuals are predisposed or prone or ideologically prone to engaging in, quote unquote, extremism or terrorism. And again, I want to emphasize in all of these programs and all of these policies, these words are never defined or there is no universal definition. There is very subjective and the subjectivity is based on people's unconscious biases that Muslims and Islam are uniquely tied to violence or uniquely tied to terrorism. So in the U.S., I remember in the early 2000s, there was a paper that came out from, it was a government-affiliated think tank. I can't remember exactly, but I remember very clearly where one of the authors was arguing the hijab is a form of passive terrorism. And most recently, which I know you've you've written on the policy exchange report and David Cameron's introduction to that report, where he says, 
critics of prevent are enabling terrorism. The the dangers of making those allegations cannot be overstated because it's it's meant to when it's meant to basically scare people and drive fear when you should absolutely be critiquing government policy that impacts the lives of individuals. So again, going back to this, the quote unquote, passive terrorism, quote, enabling terrorism, the passive terrorism had to do with hijab, which Muslim women, many Muslim women wear. The enabling terrorism was targeted at Muslim civil society organizations, exclusively targeted Muslim civil society organizations. So again, it's the logic behind it is that Muslims are predisposed or there's something uniquely tying them. They're always inherently a threat. And so early on, this theory of radicalization, basically underpinning prevent and underpinning CBE stuff, is that there are factors that you can see or you can kind of you can observe that could lead individuals into engaging in violent behavior. And early on, a lot of those were expressions of Muslim religiosity, whether that be wearing a hijab, growing a beard, going to the mosque to pray, becoming more religious over time. And you can see how problematic that can be because it basically accuses all Muslims of somehow being predisposed to this. Well, how that impacted the world or on a global stage, China's taken that exact same playbook and used it to defend genocide of Uyghur Muslims. Because what they say is that Uyghurs are, again, predisposed to a so-called ideological virus, and they are susceptible to extremism and separatism and terrorism. So they launched their own People's War on Terror in 2014. Again, the language is very, very similar to the U.S.'s War on Terror. And basically, they for, for people who don't know what's been happening there, China basically built a network of concentration camps in the far west region of Xinjiang, which Uyghurs refer to as East Turkestan. And the concentration camps are estimated to have held and detained one to three million Uyghurs. China at first denied this, but then they said these camps were re-education centers or vocational schools. And even some politicians from the CCP said they were hospitals intended to cure Uyghurs of this ideological illness of Islam. And China has targeted specifically Islamic expressions of Muslim religiosity, but also physical uh, markers of Islam, whether that be the mosque or Muslim graveyards. So you can see, and, and they're defending all of this by saying that Uyghurs are engaging in terrorism or they're susceptible to terrorism. And it's simply because of their religion and their identity. So you can trace all of that sort of logic and the, the narrative to post 9-11 war on terror discourse. It's that logic of, of an innate deviance, right? In, yes. That, um, yeah. that Muslims have, they need to be monitored and at the very least monitored, if not, you know, re-educated and de-radicalized. And that language of Muslim deviance is one that is very, very old in the West. It goes back to the Crusades and the Reconquista and all of it. But it's interesting to see how powerful it remains after all this time. And circling back to what you were saying before about when you have so many far-right leaders who use the language of Islamophobia to justify their power, then it enables or gives a pass, essentially, for other countries mm -hmm. to do the same. And you can see that with China. Have we heard a lot of overt condemnation from 
Western leaders like the American president or the British prime minister to what's happening in China and what's happening to Muslims in India. Because I just saw Boris Johnson recently went to India for a for a for a visit and he didn't talk about what was happening to the Muslim community there. Instead, he talked about how it's important to fight Sikh extremism or something along the alongside that. So there is a deliberate skirting of the issue that is happening in the international scale as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because so many leaders across the globe have incorporated Islamophobia into their agenda, into their campaigning, and it's in their arsenal of weapons when they need it. If one is to call it out, it would require them to look at themselves as well. So when it comes to what's happening in China, we have heard from from the U.S. president, they have they have stated it is a genocide. A lot of parliaments in Europe have also passed legislation calling it a genocide. But I think it's important to note that there hasn't been explicitly talking about the anti-Muslim, the Islamophobic element behind China, the rhetoric that they're using, because that would absolutely require self-reflection. So if the UK is going to talk about these, you know, rhetoric from Chinese officials talking about how oh, Uyghurs are predisposed or the threat of extremism, you'll see that they never actually re- refute that part because that would require them to look at their own policies and look at how their own policies engage in that same sort of logic. And also the other thing is that unfortunately, the violence inflicted upon Muslims is just accepted on a global stage. It is accepted and it is almost as if it's normal. Even after in what, what happened in Christchurch, when the two mosques were, uh, well, white supremacists gunned down two mosques, killing 51 worshipers and live streaming the entire event on Facebook. There was in shock and outrage, but I, I read the manifesto of, of the gunman. Everything he said and everything he wrote in is, is what leaders have been saying of, you know, we heard so much of that rhetoric right around the Brexit campaign of their invading our lands, the idea of invasion and calling Muslims and immigrants of color invaders. That is very dehumanizing language. So unfortunately, I think how mainstream it's gotten in the past two decades has meant that no one sees it. I don't even know if normalized is the word. It's it's just so accepted and it doesn't really trigger a reaction when governments don't really engage in self-reflection and accountability of themselves. They try to clamp down on accountability and dissent. But yeah, it's gotten to a point where, especially so now looking at China and India, these are the two most populous countries in the world. That region, what is happening in terms of the rightward shift, in terms of the clampdown on dissent, in terms of the marginalization of, of, of certain communities. I'm really surprised that more people aren't expressing their shock and worry because it's it's reached, I don't even think saying boiling point is accurate because I think we're past boiling point. I think we're moving into, we, we won't be able to pull it back. I think that's, that's, I think where we're headed. I mean, we already have a genocide happening in China and experts are warning that India is, is on its way to, to that as well. It seems that is agreed and accepted that there is a genocide happening in China, but that language hasn't been officially used when it comes to what's happening in India. But I have seen a lot of commentators say that, no, it is a genocide or at the very least the 
steps towards it, the preparation mm-hmm. towards it. Would you say that that's a fair assessment? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a fair assessment. So um, the founder of Genocide Watch, who predicted the Rwandan genocide, I, I believe it was last year, he came out and he said India is absolutely on the path to it. And genocide, again, it's not like an event. It's a process. So he he's saying that they're on that process. They're not all the way. I think the last stage, there's 10 stages and the last stage is denying that there's even a genocide that's happened. But before that, it's kind of dehumanizing rhetoric, instituting policies and, and legislation that discriminates against a certain community, kind of sporadic violence around in terms of like mobs and sort of, it kind of is... I feel like it's an everyday thing in India right now. Part of that genocide is not just the elimination of people. It's the elimination of history. It's the eradication of an entire community, whether whether that be physically or just historically, language, all of those things. There were campaigns in India recently where politicians were talking about we need to ban the Urdu language because they they affiliate that with being a Muslim language, which is absolutely ridiculous. So you can see how, how I don't know if nitty gritty is the right word, but it, it, it's so minute in, in, in the details in terms of what they're targeting. And, and it seems nothing is safe. Hi, frenemies. Did you know that our Frenemies book club is back? And our May book club book is none other than The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam, and the Security State by Rizwan Sabir. Rizwan was our guest on the previous episode of the podcast, so if you haven't listened to that yet, please check it out. I will be giving away two copies of the book, and to enter the giveaway, all you have to do is support the show over at Ko-fi, or share a screenshot of your review of the show with us on our Twitter. The link for our Kofi is in our bio. And as you can tell, Enemies of the People has no advertising or sponsors. All the costs of the show are covered by myself and the incredible donations of our listeners. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me continue to do this. You can always donate as a one-off donation over a coffee or join as a monthly supporter. As a monthly supporter, you also get access to our live book club Zoom meeting so we can all get together and talk to each other. It's one of the highlights of my months and I always look forward to it. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping me to continue to do this show. And now, back to the show. the targeting of education and children as well, right? Because I've read that there are some kind of uh, policies in place to that um, students cannot wear a hijab or or Muslim dress in schools, right? So in Karnataka, which is one of the southern states, which also is important to note, is home to Bangalore, which is where India's like IT, Silicon Valley industry is. So economically, it's a very, very important city for the country. But the state has also been viewed by the BJP as kind of a test run for their policies to see if the policies pass there, okay, then let's Let's try to do it in other states. So it's been kind of a guinea pig. And last year, it started with certain colleges banning uh, Muslim girls from wearing the hijab. Mind you, they've been doing this. It's never been an issue. And all of a sudden, they're targeting the hijab. And Muslim girls protested against it. It reached the state Supreme Court, I believe. And shockingly, the Supreme Court 
agreed with the decision to ban it. But it was interesting in their decision because they said that it wasn't an essential religious practice. But this case isn't about what is an essential religious practice or not. It's about a a person's right to freely practice their religion and a woman's right to freely choose how to dress. So it is going against democratic human rights. So it was really shocking and uncomfortable to see videos online of Muslim girls either forcibly having to remove their hijab and even teachers who would wear the hijab had to remove it to come into the classroom and they would also do it publicly. So they wouldn't even allow them to come into the building and and take off their job. It was on the street where they were being recorded. That is an extreme violation of your privacy. It's degrading. It is, you know, forcing a woman to undress. There's so many levels to this that we can talk about. We saw that kind of similarly happen in France with the burkini bans a few years ago. And, And France is consistent targeting of the hijab as well. But so in Karnataka, that happened and it's still ongoing where there's a few girls who are trying to appeal the case, but it's become law. And since that that hijab ban, the drive to kind of criminalize other things has increased. So it's almost as if the groups, the Hindu nationalist groups were like, oh, this was a victory. Let's keep pushing and see what else. So now they've, tar- since then, they've targeted, they banned Muslim vendors from temple fairs. They've demanded that the azan from loudspeakers and mosques. So they've said they, they want to ban it or like lower their volumes, which in Mumbai, this has already happened with hundreds of mosques where they've been threatened. So they've just lowered the volumes of the loudspeakers. Some people might not see this as a huge thing, but these are little things that they're slowly doing And the more victories they have, the greater their campaigns will be in terms of encroaching on the rights of Muslims. They want to ban halal meat. They that this was where the whole idea to ban the Urdu language came came from. It was in that state as well. So you can see how it doesn't just start and end with one thing. The ultimate goal of a lot of these right wing Hindu nationalists is to make India a Hindu only nation and a Hindu only nation does not include Muslims. And that's 14% of the population. That's 200 plus million Muslims. So you can see how how dangerous that is. Yes, people have a tendency to think of genocide as just taking people to concentration camps and killing them when that is just one step, one of the final steps towards it, Mm -hmm. not the final step. But genocide Mm -hmm. is a series of steps. You don't just wake up and suddenly see a population exterminated. As you said, the end goal of having a Hindu nation can only Mm -hmm. be achieved once you get rid of that minority, which is not even, it's not like a few hundred thousand people. It's a sizable minority. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the international stage as well, it just means more bland statements, right? It just links back to what um, Suhaima um, Manzur Khan was saying in the previous episode of the podcast, that Islamophobia is part of a capitalist system. It is serving a purpose. It's not just happening because of an animosity towards Muslim. It serves a purpose. Absolutely. It is a tactic. It is used in in the most recent Western elections. You have seen Islamophobia play a central role because it is economically beneficial. It is also lucrative. It's an entire industry. So when it comes to Islamophobia being tied to capitalism, I talked about the cottage industry of counterterror experts. Post 9-11, you had this booming industry where 
there were self-appointed experts on, on terrorism who were getting government funding. There were self-appointed you know, experts on radicalization and extremism who were opening up organizations and getting funding from the government, and the government was listening to them. So yes, there's animosity. Yes, I do believe that there is absolutely widespread acceptance that, or a widespread hatred and animosity towards Muslims. But it's also Islamophobia is a tactic. It is a tool. It's used in the larger systems of oppression. And it's used in, in whether that be in a social, political, economical framework. It is beneficial in all of those. And it's, I would say as well that it has reached a point where Islamophobia, the language of Islamophobia at the very least, has to be included in any list on the tools of fascism and authoritarian states. Because it is a language that, that people immediately recognize and it gives legitimacy to a lot of oppressive powers because of this pre-existing mm-hmm. story, narrative about Muslim and Islams that apparently is just so common sense that is everywhere. And, and we've been conditioned, especially in the past two decades, we've been conditioned to as soon as you see reports of, an, of a violent event happening, a violent attack, you wait for whether the word, whether the, the authorities say terrorism, because that's a signal to being like, oh, the perpetrator was Muslim. Because unfortunately, that's what we've been conditioned to think, whether that be in the newspapers that we read, academia has played a massive role in this, whether that be in the movies that we watch in Hollywood. It's kind of all around us and it's kind of become so, so accepted and mainstream that it's so not hard, but there's a reluctance to even investigate why we think that way. And like I said, yes, it is a tool of fascism because one of the biggest reasons why I think that a lot of right-wing far-right governments have been able have come into power is because they utilized this discourse because it had such currency in the environment that they were functioning in, whether that be in, in Austria, whether that be in Hungary, whether that be in France, in the UK, all of these things employed this idea that Muslims immigrants of color, these individuals over there are going to come over here, invade our lands, where it's going to be, their culture doesn't align with ours. And ultimately they're just a threat. And it's, they has always been like a monolith and it's been dehumanized. So Muslims aren't seen as individual peoples. They're seen as a monolithic block of just hordes of, of invaders, basically. And so you can see how that language, whether it be in that very extreme form, but we've seen it for the past two decades and it's kind of built up to this level. And now we have the resurgence of the far right around the globe. Yeah, it's it's exactly as you said, the resurgence of the far right around the globe cannot be separated from Islamophobia. And it cannot be separated from how much those who are in power, who have been in power for the past two decades, have borrow the language from the far right when it comes to Islamophobia and, and many other things as well and further legitimized it. That's why I can't take it seriously whenever any government official talks about being serious about tackling Islamophobia and racism and all of these things, because how can you do that when it's what enabled you to get to power in the first place? Exactly. And I think the UK is a prime example of that. You saw that in the most in the previous election where Sajid, Han, uh, Sajid Javid talked about are we going to do an inquiry on Islamophobia? And everyone on stage kind of got uncomfortable and they agreed to it. What came out of that inquiry? But also it was it was led by the Conservative Party, which has a history, a documented history 
of Islamophobia from the very local level all the way to the top. And there's been no transparency around how that's being tackled within the party. There's been no transparency around what happens when it's been reported that this counselor has been tweeting really horrible anti-Muslim Islamophobic messages online, gets suspended, but then is reinstated two months later. What happened? And that's like you said, it's because that it, w- it would require introspection from all the way from the bottom to the top again. So you have the prime minister who's engaged in this, but then it would also politically probably, they see it as lucrative. They see it as this is, you know, it's a strategy that's helped us get elected. Why would they clamp down? And that's the unfortunate part. But I, I think the exactly of what you said, I think what's happening in the UK is a prime example of this, this reluctance to take it seriously. What can we do as individuals to start tackling that? Because I always think that systematic change starts with small steps, right? It starts with first starting to question how you see things and why. What I say to my students when I teach a module on terrorism studies is the first thing I say in class is when I tell you the word terrorism, what comes to your mind? What do you see? There is no judgment here. You don't have to tell me. But do you see brown skin? Do you see a balaclava? Do you see flags burning? Do you see a suicide vest? Do you see the hijab? You know, what do you see in your head when that word comes to mind? Because it starts there, right? It starts by questioning your mind. So, and the stereotypes that are so deeply ingrained in all of us. So from your perspective, what is it that we can do as individuals to start tackling this problem of Islamophobia? Yeah, I completely agree. Obviously starting with, with yourself and during that, doing that introspection with yourself of what sort of biases you may have and what's kind of informed your understandings. But one of my biggest things that's all I've always kind of lived by is to stay informed of what's happening and to start at a local level to, to not Islamophobia is a massive, massive problem. It's not going to be solved tomorrow, but if you start at a local community level, whether that be, you see a, a local MP or a local counselor saying something really anti-Muslim, whether that be reaching out to the out to their office and being like, what is this? Or writing a complaint about it, taking that sort of action to let people know that this is a serious problem and you do recognize it. But again, I think that it can be overwhelming. So I wouldn't ever want people to think that you have to take on all of these anti-Muslim policies around the globe stay focused on a very local and communal level and also inform other people. Unfortunately, there are still, there are so many circles that don't think Islamophobia is real, which is really shocking given the level that we're at. Educating oneself and educating others, I think is also very important. But yeah, to to top it off, I would just say to stay informed, to be vocal about it, to not remain silent, and to continue supporting the works of individuals and organizations who are doing this work every day. Thank you so much, Babrasha, for coming to the show. I appreciate it so much. I've read your writing for such a long time, and I had so many questions about Islamophobia on the global level, and I'm so glad we were able to talk about it today. Thanks so much for having me. This was this was really nice, and I'm glad we could finally connect. <laughs> finally. That was Mobashra Tazamal. You can find her on Twitter at Moby Mose. I've linked to her articles on the episode description so you can read more of her excellent work. If you're enjoying Enemies of the People, please tell everyone you know. 
rate and review the show, subscribe, follow, listen to your favorite episodes again and again and again, and make sure to share the podcast widely. As you know, we have no sponsors or advertising or a network of any kind, so we really rely on your word of mouth to get the podcast out there. You can also help keep enemies of the people going and growing by supporting us over a coffee, either as a one-off or as a monthly supporter. I am trying to raise enough money to build a better website for our show, where we can post show notes as well as transcripts of every episode. I actually have all the transcripts for the episodes, but no way of sharing them with you. Sadly, a function website is not cheap, so every little helps. Also remember, I'm giving away two free copies of our May Book Club book, Rizwan Sabir's The Suspect, Counterterrorism, Islam, and the Security State. So to be in a chance of winning, just buy me a coffee or share a screenshot of your review of the show with us on Twitter. I really appreciate all of you here listening to the show and all of your support. Enemies of the People keeps on going because of you, so thank you. You can find us on Twitter at EnemiesPod. I'm on Twitter at Maria W. Norris. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week for more Enemies of the People. Thank you.